and thank you for those of you that are joining us online. We know that you're with us. I'm glad that you're with us. Well, make no mistake about it, that when the gospel is preached and the kingdom of God is advanced, that we can expect opposition. And at sometimes we can expect that there will be persecution. Well, Jesus prepared his disciples uh, for these kind of moments. In John chapter 15, he said this, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. And that's a fine thing to know, right? But when the helper comes, that'd be the Holy Spirit, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. I have said all these things to you to keep you from falling away. They will put you out of the synagogues. Indeed, the hour is coming when whoever kills you will think he is offering a service to God. And they will do these things because they have not known the Father nor me. But I said these things to you that when the hour comes, you may remember that I told you them. And so Jesus prepared the disciples, he prepares us, because throughout history, as the gospel has presented, um, there has been persecution, even to this present day. In fact, Open Doors is a ministry to the persecuted church around the world, reports that 360 million Christians live in nations with high levels of persecution and discrimination. That's one in seven worldwide. A thousand more died last year because of their faith. A thousand more have been detained last year, from last year because of their faith. 600 more churches um, have been burned or attacked um, because of their faith. So persecution is on the rise. There are about 50 countries in the world that suffer persecution. And guess which one is on the top of the list? I've heard people say, well, that's got to be North Korea, right? Well, actually, North Korea was a front runner for a long time, but guess who's moved to the top? That would be Afghanistan. Yes, ever since the takeover of the Taliban, Afghanistan has uh, moved to the top of the list of the most persecuted country in the world. Well, this morning we're going to look at Acts chapter 3 and chapter 4. And what we'll see is the beginning of persecution in the early church. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, so buckle your seatbelts. Uh, we're going to take a look at a miracle that takes place. And then we're going to take a look at Peter's presentation of the gospel in light of that healing. And then we'll look at the opposition that comes. And then we'll look at the prayer of the believers for boldness. So let me kind of set the scene for us first of all. It is around 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And Jews in Jerusalem would often gather in the temple courtyards for the hour of prayer, 3 o'clock in the afternoon. 
that was kind of the center of Jewish life in those days. And so it was very common for them to gather today, gather together. And so Peter and John uh, kind of teamed up to go into the temple area. Uh, Peter and John is kind of interesting. Those two guys are like totally opposites, you know. Peter was just gung-ho, impetuous, and John was more laid back. And yet God had brought these two guys together uh, to team up uh, as those that would share the gospel. And uh, so when they get there, and there's this man who is lame from birth. And he's in his 40s. Imagine that, right? 40 years. He never got to play and run with other kids. And because there wasn't a welfare system, um, he was dependent on people carrying him to the temple site, to the temple gate, and uh, where he could panhandle for a living. Kind of a sad situation. So now I'm reading in, in verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they, who laid daily at the gate of the temple, that is called Beautiful Gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. Now, this man, no doubt, um, probably had Jesus, Jesus pass him by many times. Remember, Jesus would go to the same setting many times, and he would teach in the temple courtyards. And, and you know, Jesus didn't heal everybody. You know, he no doubt passed this man many, many times. But now in this hour, in this moment, it says that Peter directed his gaze at him as did John and said, look at us. And he fixed his attention on them. This is what you call a divine appointment. <laughs> a divine appointment. A moment in time for whatever reason in God's plan Peter locks eyes with this guy. It's kind of like you ever been at a stoplight and there's somebody holding a sign, you know, homeless, and you lock eyes, you know that that guy's coming at you. <laughs> you know that something is going to happen in that moment. Well, this is kind of what's happening here. He's expecting what? He's expecting to get some coins in his jar. Well, that's not what happens. He's expecting to receive something from them, but Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. So this is a divine appointment. Have you ever had a divine appointment? Have you ever been just walking along, just going through life, and maybe you bump into a stranger or somebody, and you know that in that moment there's a conversation that's happening that you did not expect but it was very meaningful. Uh, my wife one time, she was in Walmart. You know, it's a pretty busy place, right? And uh, she goes up to this gal. This gal was, you know, stocking the shelves. And um, Karen just simply said, you know, hey, how you doing? And Karen noticed that she was kind of upset, kind of weepy. And, and she just, for a moment there, just said, well, you okay? You know, and she began to pour, pour out her story. And, and Karen, um, very gracious, says, would you mind if I pray for you? So right in the middle of Walmart, right? You know, she's able to care for this, this individual that was really hurting. Those are divine appointments. You've had them. Or maybe you've been the product of a divine appointment where someone just stopped and spoke into your life. This is one of those moments. So in this moment, Peter 
in the name of Jesus Christ, says to him, rise and walk. This is what we call a miracle. A miracle, by definition, is a divine intervention that defies natural laws. Divine invention that defies natural laws. Like when Jesus turned water into wine, right? There were these jugs of wine. You know, he didn't get a bunch of grapes and start squishing them and then make wine. That water just turned into wine like that. Or the time when Jesus walked on water, right? You know, you ever tried that lately? Walking on water? That's, that doesn't work too good, does it? Natural law says you will go underwater if you try to walk on water. Those are miracles. And I wonder in this moment if Peter had a flashback um, as he reaches down to, to, to pick this man up. Do you remember the time when Peter was in the boat and Jesus came walking on water? And Peter, of course, you know, he's got to go walk out to Jesus. So he goes out of the boat, starts walking on water, and he goes, starts to go down. And Jesus reached down his hand and pulled Peter up. I wonder, I'm just... I'm not sure, but I wonder if he had a, a flashback at that moment when the time that Jesus grabbed his hand. Now Peter is reaching the hand of this man that is lame, and, he, and the miracle takes place because of Jesus Christ who was alive, a testimony to the resurrection of Christ. And so what we also see here is this is kind of a glimpse of what we would call the final restoration you know, God is going to restore all things. And Isaiah, Isaiah, who projects way into the future, he says in chapter 35, then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. There is a day coming. Pam, you won't need that chair. Donna, you won't need that walker, right? That glorious day. And those of you that are doing the sign, you, you'll be able to hear. That day is coming. That day is coming. And this is a beautiful picture of that final restoration. This morning I was reading, I read out of this book called Every Moment Holy. It's kind of a book of liturgies and prayers. And this morning, this one really struck out to me. It's called Feelings of Infirmities. It goes like this. We were not made for mortality, but for immortality. Our souls are ever in their prime. And so the faltering of our physical bodies repeatedly takes us by surprise. The aches, the frailties, the injuries, the impositions of vexing disease and worsening condition are unwelcome evidences of our long exile from the garden. Even so, May the inescapable decline of our bodies here not be wasted. May it do its tutoring work, inclining our hearts and souls ever more vigorously toward your coming kingdom, O oh God. Yes. We long, we groan within our bodies, longing for the redemption of our bodies. And here is a picture of that final restoration. So obviously, here's this man. Everybody knows him, right? Passing by every day, and all of a sudden, he's jumping up and down. He's getting a crowd. A crowd is starting to gather. And of course, 
this becomes an opportunity, right? This becomes an opportunity for Peter to explain what's happened here. And so we, we find that Peter is going to preach a sermon. And this sermon really doesn't focus so much on this man that was lame that now can walk, but his attention, and this is the work of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, by the way, always will point to Jesus. He points to Jesus. He glorifies Jesus. And that's what Peter does in this sermon. So he talks about the name of Jesus and Jesus. And he describes Jesus, and he uses three terms that would describe Jesus in his sermon. I'm reading um, part of that sermon. Peter saw, and he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you want wonder this? Or why do you stare at us as though our own power or piety has made this man walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, and the God of our fathers glorified his servant whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. So the first thing he mentions about Jesus is that Jesus is the glorified servant. He's a glorified servant. Isaiah talked about Jesus as God's servant, the servant that would suffer, the suffering servant. Isaiah 52, Isaiah 53 talks about this suffering savior that would take our sins upon himself, but he would be glorified. Apostle Paul talks about Jesus in Philippians 2. He said that Jesus humbled himself as a servant and he died on the cross. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. But God highly exalted him. And at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Secondly, he describes Jesus as holy and righteous, but you denied the holy and the righteous one and asked for a murder to be granted to you. The holy and the righteous one. This is beginning to kind of touch their hearts now because this is the same crowd of people that under the pressure of the religious rulers, they were the ones when they had an option, an option to choose Barabbas, chose Jesus and cried out, crucify him. Same crowd, right? Now the Holy Spirit is starting to move in this crowd as Jesus, the resurrected one, is being presented. But he's called holy and righteous. When Jesus was before Pilate, remember Pilate cross-examined him and he came to the conclusion, I don't find any fault in this man. First, Timothy, First Peter 3, 18 says, for Christ also suffered for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous. In 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says, he who has made sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So he's the suffering servant who is exalted. He is the holy and righteous one. And thirdly, in verse 15, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. So as the author of life, John speaks of Jesus in his gospel, that him all things came into existence and by him all things exist. In him is life. And here's 
this man who was lame, was lame and now is standing up, jumping up and down as a testimony to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, after the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Paul reports in, Psalm, in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus actually appeared, not to just a one or two here, at one time he appeared to 500 people, all of them witnessing the resurrected Christ. My guess is there was probably some of those people in this crowd saying, yep, we saw him, he is alive. So that's so much a part of the message, is it not? 500 people saw him. So now Peter, in his sermon, after he presents Jesus Christ as the servant, as the holy and righteous one, as the author of life, um, he's calling for a response. In fact, wherever God reveals truth, he demands a response. And so he says to the crowd, in verse 19 of chapter 3, Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that the times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Christ, the Christ appointed for you. So now he is calling them to make a decision with what they have heard now and calling them to repentance. What is repentance? Well, it's, it's a word in Greek is from the word metanoio. It means a change of mind, a change of mind that results in a change in direction. Now, we have a really great story that illustrates repentance. It's the story of the prodigal son. Do you remember that story? Luke chapter 15, the story about that boy who took early inheritance from his father and he went to the far country and he blew it all and thought, you know, uh, life is good, but it turned out to be pretty bad, right? He ran out of money, got a job feeding pigs. Not a good idea for a little Jewish boy. and. Uh, and he ends up, he's so hungry, he's eating the pig's food. He is in a bad place. Dawns on him. It says, literally, he came to his senses. He changed his mind. What am I doing here? And when he, when he came to that awareness, he changed his mind. He got, it says, he got up from where he was, and he went back home. That is a beautiful picture of saving faith in Jesus Christ in repentance. When we recognize that we fall short of the glory of God, there's nothing we could do possibly throughout our lifetime to gain entrance into heaven and to gain God's favor because all we like sheep have gone astray. But what we realize, the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. So saving faith is recognizing our sinfulness turning to Jesus Christ as our only hope for salvation. So he calls them to this. And actually, he, he brings in a warning because he brings up the prophets. In verse 23, it says, And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. Wow, that's a pretty fierce thing. You know, you have a decision to make based on who Jesus is. And uh, to not listen or to just ignore it has some dire consequences. And Jesus was very upfront too. You know John 3.16? Y'all know John 3.16, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. The next verse, or two verses 
down, verse 18 says, he that has the son has life. He that has not the son does not have life. And at the end of that chapter, he says, he that believes on Jesus has eternal life. And he who does not believe, the wrath of God abides over him. Wow. So to not make a decision is to have made a decision. And Jesus made it very clear here that we must come to Jesus Christ if we expect to have eternal life. Well, this isn't going over too good because amongst this crowd are some religious rulers. You know, the rabbinical people that were, they were literally the, uh, the temple security guards. They were the, the religious group that, quite frankly, were the ones that put Jesus to death. You see, their job was to keep any kind of disruptions from happening out of fear of what Rome would do. Because Rome would, Rome would come down on them. So they had to keep everything calm. And, and this crowd that's starting to gather now is like, like deja vu for them, right? Because they assumed that, you know, we, Jesus is dead, he's gone. We don't have to worry about that. And now Peter gets up and he starts talking about in the name of Jesus of Nazareth, arise. And so for them, it's like, oh no, not again. I gotta deal with Jesus again? And so chapter four, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Particularly annoyed were the Sadducees, right? They were a religious sect that did not, they thought they had the only interpretation to scripture, but they also denied the fact that there was erection. And so they're proclaiming the resurrection. And so this, this group of security guards, if you will, are getting extremely annoyed. And so what do they do? Oh, by the way, <laughs> instead of people backing off, the church actually grew by 2,000 in verse four. But many of those who heard the word believed and the number of the men that came uh, to about 5,000. Okay, so in the midst of all this disruption, um, 2,000 more people get added to the church. Remember 3,000 got saved in Acts chapter two. Now there's two more thousand and that just says men. So there's probably women and children added. So there's thousands of people. In spite of the opposition that is rising, the church is growing. Hold that thought because that's important. Because under persecution, the church actually grows. And this is what is happening right here. So they get arrested and detained. Um, but the church grows. And so they, they gather together and uh, uh, get cross-examined. And um, it reminds me of what something Jesus said. Now picture this, it's the next day when they really gather the troops together. All the big shots, uh, the religious big shots, um, Annas, the retired high priest, and Caiaphas, and the whole family of priests, they're, they're kind of like in a semicircle. Peter and John are kind of in the middle with this lame man. So kind of picture that this is, this is sort of the trial that is going on. And, and Jesus also told them about this. Listen to this in Matthew 10. Behold, I'm sending you 
as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to the courts, flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake, to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, don't be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will, begin, will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. And that's exactly what's happening right here. They're standing trial. And these guys, these are a bunch of fishermen, right? And, and to, to these religious leaders, you know, they're, they're ignorant fishermen. They're uneducated. They didn't go to the rabbinical school that they went to. And yet God had given them by the power of the Holy Spirit in these moments to say what they needed to say. And I want to draw your attention to one of the main things that they said in their defense. And this is a, actually a verse that kept me up a few nights ago. I got up in the middle of the night and this was, whoa, this was just, uh, it kind of troubled me and, and awakened me. It's verse 12 of chapter 4. Peter says, there's no salvation in anyone else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. Let me read that again. Hear it. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Doesn't that sound a little narrow to you? Salvation can only come through Jesus Christ. Isn't there a lot of ways? No, not really. In fact, Jesus himself talked a lot about this. I remember the time in John chapter 10. He had just um, given a blind man his sight back. A miracle. And then he started talking to the crowd. Of course, he brought a crowd. Among them were the religious leaders. And Jesus starts talking about in terms of a sheepfold and sheep. And a sheepfold is it's like a wall uh, built around where the sheep would go in at night to be safe, right? But in order to get in there, you had to go through a door, the door of the sheepfold. Jesus paints this picture, and then he says, I'm the door. No one gets through and goes into that sheepfold unless he comes through the door, unless he comes through me. Well, that upset people. That upset the religious leaders. They accused him of being possessed by a demon. They said he was crazy. Jesus said, I love his response. Can demons make blind people see? Right? Kind of similar to what's going on here with Peter and John. They have a man who can now walk who has lame his entire life. Proof and evidence of the resurrected Christ. You know, this is a, a very, very critical point because we live in a culture uh, and, and you're hearing the word inclusive, right? Oh, inclusive. Everybody, everybody's okay, right? Everybody's okay. Well, uh, that's not really the message of the gospel. In fact, there are concerns within the church uh, hopefully not here, but, but there things creep into the church, right? Something called universalism. 
if you're not familiar with that term, which is simply the belief that, you know, at the end of the day, we all end up in heaven. You know, God's good and he's loving and, and everybody's going to end up in heaven. Some would have said, said this, that slow, silent, growing malignancy in the church today that hollows out the gospel, undercuts the Great Commission, and undermines missions. Well, that's, a, that's quite a warning, isn't it? Are we prepared for the, for the, 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 the backlash of being called narrow-minded? Are you prepared to do that? Are you prepared to stand with Peter and Jesus and, and proclaiming that Jesus is the only way and the only way for eternal life is through him? Peter, who would go on uh, later in life uh, to the point where Nero was the king. If you know anything about Nero, he persecuted Christians. He would burn them at the stake. Things were getting pretty rough. And Peter has this advice for us. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as Lord, as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense of anyone who asks you of the reason of the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. That's important, right? You know, if we, in this country, we've enjoyed some liberties and, and maybe, you know, we're not sure how long those will last, right? And so what do we do? Just demand our rights? Or do we, by the power of the Spirit, in gentleness and respect, hold our ground and love people and share the good news with them? That is our posture. So, so the, there's the opposition, their response. They're told, you can't, you can't preach in Jesus' name. We don't even want to hear his name anymore. Peter says, well, sorry. <laughs> sorry about that. We answer to a higher power, and that would be God. That would be God. We answer to him. They have nothing to say. I mean, here's this man who's been healed. It just kind of shuts things down for them. Well, I want to share with you something now that um, uh, we, have a, we have a wonderful friend. Uh, we would consider one of our pastors here at Northland for many years, Pastor um, Adrian DeVisser from Sri Lanka. He's been here. He's spoken. So has his son, Prashan. And uh, I love this guy. I remember the first time I met Prashan. I was over in the rink, and he said something to me. He said, John, you have so much, but you have so little. We have so little but we have so much. I'm going, okay, I'm not sure what that means. And then the tsunamis hit Sri Lanka. And me and some friends went over to help out during the, after that tsunami. And then I understood what he meant, that we have so little, but we have so much. And what they have so much of is this strong sense of community. They get it. They get it. We have this individualism here in the West, but they have this sense of they're connected to one another. It was just amazing. Well, we traveled throughout the country and we went down south to a, a town called Gaul. And I'll let him tell the story. Sharing Christ in Sri Lanka 
you need to have courage and boldness because our people are unreached. They don't know what Jesus can do in their lives. They have been told by their religious leaders that Christianity is a foreign religion that has to be rejected and the preachers of the gospel must be persecuted. Let me give you good examples. There was a young couple, they felt God touched them. They felt God called them to go down south. And traditionally down south has been very hostile to the gospel. They went, they they started meeting with a group of people. They began to share Christ. The religious leaders were so annoyed, so angry. They came and warned him and said, look, you cannot do this. If you do this, we will destroy your church and we will harm you. This guy whose name is Lionel, he kept saying, I can't abandon what God has asked me to do. He paid the price on the cross of Calvary. How can I not share that Jesus loves them? And he continued to do that. One day they came and this guy knew they had come to harm him. He ran into the house, grabbed his one-year-old child, knelt down, prayed, offered him to Christ and he said, Lord, into your hands I commit myself. The next thing they did was they shot him and killed him. And they thought that was the end of it. But at the funeral, wife declared it publicly and she said, I know some of you who killed my husband is here. So let me now make a public announcement. I have taken over the church. I am the pastor of the church. You can kill me too. But someone else will take my place. And I praise God for this lady and I praise God for Lionel. After his death, the church began to grow and it is one of the largest churches down south. Many people have come to know the Lord through their suffering and the price they paid because of their boldness. The gospel is now being preached in south of Sri Lanka. (laughs) Atsula Lani, she is amazing. I can still see her face and the joy on her face as she told that story. And it did get rough for her. Um, She was kicked out of the house that she was staying in because of the threats and the landlord didn't want it. um, the next house they went to, the threats to burn it down. And, but she kept on going. She kept on going. The church kept growing. Um, Christianity actually uh, ran an article and did an interview with her and uh, described uh, all that she had gone through. And here's what Lalani said. God became very close to me during that time. I would tell him everything. I said, if you want me to die, I am ready to do it. But I'd prefer to not, not to, because I have work to do here. But if I die, I want to write on the wall with my blood, Jesus is alive. That's amazing. And at the time of that article, there's 1,200 new believers in that area. And uh, seven churches were established. And by now, probably many, many 
more. What an example to us. So now, these bodies, this body of believers, after all that is going on, realize it's time to have a prayer meeting. <laughs> things, are, things are getting rough. So they have a prayer meeting. The prayer meeting starts in verse 23. And when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of your father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. So the first thing about this prayer in this prayer meeting is to acknowledge the sovereignty of God. Acknowledging the sovereignty of God, that God is in control. We sang just earlier that what, what the enemy means for evil, God can turn around to that which is good. And we see that so many times where God takes that which is evil and turns it into good. Jesus himself, right? The tragedy of the crucifixion where it looks like the enemy is getting the upper hand and finally Jesus is killed. And in the death of Jesus, he disarmed all principalities and powers. And he created opportunity for you and I to be reconciled to God. Jesus won. He took what was evil and he turned it into good. That was true of Joseph. Remember when the brothers threw him in the pit and he was enslaved in Egypt? And, you know, oh, that's terrible. But you know the end of that story. And Joseph, when he finally had his brothers, and he's the second in command in Egypt, he says, what you meant for evil, God has meant for good. You know, I know we use it as a cliche in Romans 8, 28. You know, all things work together for good. For those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. It may be a cliche, but boy, I tell you what, it is true. You know, it's important for us to remember, isn't it? That when things don't go our way or things get really hard, that we serve a God who is sovereign and takes anything that comes into our life and can turn it into what is good. So the next part of their prayer is, Lord, we, not, we need to keep talking. In verse 29, And now the Lord look upon their hearts and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and the signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. And so you and I, because of the work of Jesus, can come, first of all, boldly before the throne of grace. In fact, not far from where this happened was the temple. And if you remember in the description of the death of Jesus and the earth was shaking, that the veil in the temple was torn open from top to bottom, miraculously, indicating that the access into the presence of God is now open through Jesus Christ. And you and I have that access. 
So if you're feeling fear or, or, or intimidation, know that we have access, we have grace to help in time of need. So we pray for boldness. So as I close, I want to I mention that we've been talking about the good news, this good news about Jesus Christ, and how important it is to have come to a decision of faith in Jesus Christ. Maybe you're here this morning and you've never come to that place where you said, I am putting my faith in Jesus Christ. Or maybe you're online. Um, I can't think of a better day to do that because you just don't know how many days you have. And to not decide is to have decided. So if you're here this morning and you are for the very first time realizing the good news and you're putting your faith in Jesus, man, we'd love to have a conversation. You can come up and pray later on. There'll be some people here. Or you can chat online with some folks that are with you there. But by all means, come to Jesus Christ. You will be guaranteed eternal life. You will have a foundation that will never, ever go away. Secondly, church, it's time for us to be bold. Not obnoxious, by the way. Being bold and obnoxious are two different things. <laughs> we are to have respect uh, and to be gentle. So would you pray with me? Well, God, our Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ who loved us and gave himself for us. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead with great power. And Father, you're still very, very much involved in this world, and you have commissioned us to share that good news. Pray that you would give us a boldness, a holy boldness, that would proclaim your world, proclaim your truth to a, a dying world. Put that burden on our hearts now. We pray also, Father, as we continue at Northland here, we just thank you for all the things you're doing. And we continue to pray for our next lead pastor. We've been praying, and we know that you hear our voice. You hear us. We pray for him, that the Holy Spirit would be guiding and directing him in, in his decisions. So we look to you, we trust you, and we love you. In Jesus' name, amen.